Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, Al Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of Al Monitor, and this week our guest is Al Monitor senior correspondent, Ambrin Zaman. Ambrin is also my alternating co-host of this podcast, she recently returned from reporting trips to Iraqi Kurdistan and Northeast Syria, and we will be discussing today her articles and observations based on her coverage. Let's set the scene. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has again threatened a military incursion into Northeast Syria, although that may now be on hold. Now, if this sounds familiar, it is. Two years ago, in October 2019, with the green light from then U.S. President Donald Trump, Erdogan launched Operation Peace Spring, a military attack on Kurdish-held towns in northeast Syria on the Turkish border. In response, he said, to what he calls terrorism from Syrian Kurdish groups there, and also in order to create a safety zone in Syria to address the flood of Syrian refugees into Turkey. Turkey considers the People's Protection Units, known by the acronym YPG, as the Syrian branch of the Turkish Kurdistan Workers' Party, known as the PKK, which both Turkey and the United States have designated as a terrorist group. Turkey also hosts around 3.6 million Syrian refugees and fears more may be coming if the Syrian government, backed by Russia, launches an attack on Idlib, the last major enclave of opposition and jihadi forces opposed to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Erdogan reached a deal with Putin in 2019 that brought in Syrian military forces to adjoining areas and limited Turkey's occupation in northeast Syria to two small towns, Tel Abyad and Ras Alain. The Russian deal, however, promised that all elements of the YPG and their arms would be removed from adjoining areas, but that hasn't happened. So since then, and over the last few weeks, Erdogan's public statements have become increasingly threatening. Last month, he linked the PKK and the YPG, not just to terrorism against Turkey, but he also linked both groups to the drug trade in Europe. Erdogan also said last month that a rocket attack on a Turkish convoy in Syria that killed two Turkish special forces personnel has, and I'm quoting Erdogan, broken the camel's back. And he added that we are determined to eliminate threats arising from there, either with the forces active in these areas or with our own means. This is all complicating for relations between NATO allies, Turkey, and the United States. The YPG makes up the core of the Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF, which are backed by the United States and have been a reliable and effective partner for the U.S.-led coalition in the successful military campaign against the Islamic State in Syria. The U.S. maintains 900 troops in Syria and a partnership with the SDF. As I mentioned earlier, while the United States shares Turkey's view of the PKK as a terrorist organization, it does not consider the YPG and the SDF as a terrorist group. A major difference 
between Ankara and Washington. Russian President Vladimir Putin has tried to broker a deal among the Syrian government, the Syrian Kurds, and Turkey. But the pieces haven't yet come together, in part because of the bad blood among all parties. This is an incredibly complex picture, and there is no one better to explain it than Amber and Zaman. And that conversation begins now. Amber and welcome. It's great to be talking with you our third time together on our podcast on the Middle East. Well, it's great to be with you, Andrew, always. You reported from Kabur Valley in northeast Syria about the effects of the drought, which is the worst in decades, as if Syrians haven't suffered enough. And Turkey is using water in what you've called a war of attrition against Syrian Kurds there. And this is an issue you've been covering for some time. Paint the picture of what you saw there in northeast Syria, the effects of the drought, and what you assess to be Turkey's interest in using water as a weapon. As you said, Syria is experiencing the worst drought in 70 years, and it's having a devastating effect on agriculture, obviously. And you know that the Kurdish-controlled region is sort of the breadbasket of Syria. That's where all the wheat and barley is grown. And so with no rain, uh, there's no crops. I mean, the farmers are unable to plant any seeds because they're worried that if they do so, the crops will fail. They're already heavily indebted. And of course, you know, that also means that everything, the price of everything is going up, especially of bread, because you make bread with wheat. So life has become very, very difficult as if it wasn't already, as you said, difficult enough. Uh, What with, you know, remnants of ISIS that they're still um, fighting with the numerous embargoes, sanctions that are imposed on Syria and which obviously affects the Kurdish-run region as well. But then on top of all of this, you, of course, have Turkey's war of attrition, as I call it. And what is that? That That's unfolding on various levels. First of all, you have the drone strikes. Turkey has escalated the drone strikes targeting PKK, or people they claim are PKK, in northeast Syria and civilians are getting killed in these drone strikes. So people live in fear of these drones, you know, (laughs) hitting them. Uh, You have this constant shelling that is occurring from the ceasefire lines where dividing Turkish troops and their rebel allies from the SDF. And so people are having to move away from those areas because again, they risk getting killed. Um, And this has been going on unremittingly since October, 2019, when Turkey invaded that area uh, between Talabyad and uh, Rasul Ayn. So that's going on. And then you have Turkey weaponizing water. And how is it doing that? Well, there's this power station, a power pumping, station. It it pumps the water um, from uh, this place called Aluk to Al-Hasika region in northeast Syria. And 
over a million people depend on the water that's pumped from that station, while Turkey keeps turning it off. And it cites technical reasons for doing that. Um, but in fact, the authorities I spoke to say that Turkey is doing this deliberately because it creates instability in the area. It makes life unbearably difficult for people. And in turn, of course, over time, people then start to blame the local authorities. And that's exactly what Turkey wants to have happen, for life to be hard for those people under Kurdish rule. At the same time, Turkey is demanding that in exchange for the water, the Kurds provide them with electricity from the Tishrin Dam that's transmitted via a power station, the Mabruka power station, but it's demanding uh, electricity, so much electricity that this would have to be at the expense of people living in the areas under Kurdish control. So as the uh, Kurds see it, you know, uh, the Turks want them to enable their occupation while their own people suffer. And so they find that pretty unacceptable. So all of these things are happening at the same time. But of course, the drought, the drought is, you know, really debilitating. And the authorities also accuse Turkey of withholding water from the Euphrates. Uh, the Euphrates, of course, originates in Turkey and flows in uh, to that area, the Habu Valley and much of Northeast Syria. And the agriculture there relies very heavily on the waters of the Euphrates and its tributaries, one of which, the biggest, in fact, the Habur, has actually dried up. Um, I was quite shocked to see that uh, this time. And the local administration says that Turkey is just withholding that water. In fact, of course, Turkey is also affected by drought, which is all part of cl global climate change. So yes, they're reti retaining water because as they would say, see things they have to uh, in order to protect their own agriculture. So it's a very complex, difficult uh, situation. What did you pick up in your reporting about how the people of Northeast Syria view the Syrian Democratic Forces and the related Kurdish Authority, as well as the Turkish-backed opposition groups there? what is the degree of support? Are they viewed as patriots or mercenaries? And I suppose it depends on who you're talking to, but give us a sense of, of the political landscape on the ground. Well, first of all, I, I wasn't in, uh, in any of the areas occupied by Turkey and their um, you know, Syrian rebel allies. So I have no idea what the people living, living under their rule uh, feel. I mean, I have secondhand accounts of that, you know, and we've done quite a bit of reporting on that based on our sources on the ground there. Um, but I haven't had direct contact with those people. But if you mean uh, people living outside those areas who were victims of their abuses and were uprooted by that invasion, of course, they feel um, very negative things about Turkey and its rebel proxies, uh, the, um, the, the, the lawlessness that now prevails in those areas and the people who had to flee their homes have been looted, have been taken over. Um, horrible things are happening. And in fact, one of those factions, Sharkal, uh, uh, Ahrar al-Sharkiya, 
has now been uh, sanctioned by the United States government for uh, its abuses. And the United Nations, as you know, has described some of those uh, abuses as war crimes. So um, there's that. Um, and insofar as how they feel about uh, the Kurdish-led administration, uh, you know, I speak to many people when I go there. And while some will not, you know, support the political views of that administration, what they all will tell you, um, without exception, I'd say, at least in my experience, is that they feel safer in that area than they would anywhere else. And that, you know, compared to the rest of Syria, in, there's, there, they, there's law and order. There's no fear of, you know, people coming in and demanding ransom money after kidnapping their loved ones or that kind of thing that, 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 that happens all the time in the rest of Syria. One problem that did exist was forced conscription of males up to the age of 30, and the local administration has taken complaints on this issue into account, particularly coming from the Arabs who live under their control, and have now said that only males between the age of 18 and 23 have to do mandatory um, military service, and that sort of really eased tensions quite a bit. But of course, the economic situation makes everything very hard for everybody. And it also makes the fight against the Islamic State or the remnants of the Islamic State as they try to regroup um, quite tricky because ISIS profits from this economic uh, crisis. It's able to basically offer money to people and say, you know, join us and we'll give you money and people do and i actually spoke to one such recruit recently while i was there amber and you also interviewed syrian democratic forces leader mazlum kobani you know him well you've interviewed him over the years and your many reporting trips there kobani said he doesn't expect turkish president recep tayyip erdogan to invade syria again Erdogan has threatened such an invasion. Kobani's view, which is held by others at this point, is that the U.S. and Russia may be holding Turkey back. How do you see the situation? And tell us uh, your impressions of, of Kobani and how the SDF sees its position, given Turkey, Russia's role, and the United States, where I also picked up in your article, there may be some concerns about U.S. staying power in Syria. Well, first of all, let me say this. Uh, Maslam Kobani is probably one of the more inspiring figures I've met over the years uh, among the Kurds, really. He's a, something of a visionary, I'd say. He's uh, extremely intelligent, always very sort of poised and calm and self-assured and seems to be you know very much in command um, of the situation and of the challenges uh, he has a very realistic assessment of the challenges that the region faces uh, he's also i'd say very diplomatic so sort of a soldier diplomat uh, seems to have a very good grasp of of, of international affairs uh, which you might consider quite surprising given his 
background. Uh, uh, in general, he seemed quite confident that, as you said, Turkey would not be attacking anytime soon because uh, it's a very different time to when it did back in 2019. Donald Trump was the president. He had a great relationship with Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, he was unpredictable. He, you know, <laughs> suddenly out of the blue decided to withdraw US troops only to reverse that decision when faced by a congressional outcry. The Biden administration is much more predictable, more rational as he would describe it as, and most people would agree. Uh, and Turkey is really not in a position to act unless it gets the assent of either the United States or Russia. And that does not seem to be forthcoming from either side. The Russians have no interest in seeing Turkey uh, occupy more of Syria, absolutely not. What they might be interested in is seeing Turkey do stuff that would drive a further wedge between it and the United States. So they might encourage Turkey to maybe do something in the areas that uh, are under uh, US's control. But then how would Turkey do that if the US says, no, you can't do that? So it's a bit, a lot trickier for, for Erdogan to do anything unilaterally. But of course, we are talking about a leader who has his back against the wall. Turkey's economy is going downhill at a very alarming pace. He is facing elections in 2023, and his poll numbers are not looking good at all. So there is that theory out there that he needs a distraction. And what better distraction than a war and one that can mobilize Turkish nationalist sentiment against you know, the Kurds. The thing is, though, things are changing inside Turkey. And the most significant change that we've seen over the past months is the main opposition party's position on the Kurds for the first time. They're working with the Kurds uh, domestically. I'm talking about the pro-Kurdish HDP, People's Democratic Party, that they uh, were allied with. Um, in the 2019 municipal elections, and it, there's, you know, there's every reason to believe that they intend to pursue that alliance in the forthcoming parliamentary and presidential elections. We saw a high-level uh, CHP main opposition party delegation visit Iraqi Kurdistan for the first time and meet with all the Iraqi Kurdish leaders, the president, the prime minister. That again signals a shift. And then most significantly, I would add, uh, the main opposition party voted against a parliamentary bill authorizing Turkish troops to intervene in Syria and Iraq. That's another first. So, uh, the, you know, it, it, the, the, the ground is really shifting in Turkey. And therefore, Erdogan cannot really move as easily as he used to. How does Muslim Kabani feel about the SDF's relationship with the United States? The SDF was an important on-the-ground partner uh, for the United States, the U.S.-led coalition, I should say, in defeating the Islamic State in Syria. How is he feeling about that relationship? And how do you see U.S. policy in Syria at this point? 
first of all, I think that that Muslim Kobani um, has a very positive view of the United States. There's absolutely no doubt about that. He deals with uh, the US military daily and there are US diplomats on the ground who he meets and then ones, more senior ones who come in every so often as we saw recently with the deputy assistant secretary for Syria um, who just came through. As far as what he expects from the United States though, he is quite disappointed because he does see a lack of political engagement for one, because the US says that its official position is that it's in Syria to make sure that ISIS never comes back. So to finish off any ISIS remnants and to create an environment where it cannot come back, it cannot regroup. So stabilization, as they call it. But what he wants to see is, first of all, engagement with the political cadres of Northeast Syria and money. He, he wants financial support because, as he rightly argues, with the economy and the state that it is, it's very, um, very hard to, to really effectively address the Islamic State threat. And the focus, he believes, now needs to shift from, you know, military operations really to creating a, a stable economic environment where, where ISIS cannot, uh, you know, find recruits anymore. So that's really what he wants from the US. And that means exempting Northeast Syria from the Caesar sanctions. He wants US companies to be allowed to come and invest. And of course, there's the example of this uh, oil company, Delta, that had signed uh, an agreement with that administration when Trump was still president. Uh, but then the Biden administration did not extend its waiver to, to, to function, to do business in Syria. So they saw that as a very sort of negative message that says, you know, the US isn't really interested in helping that area economically. Amber, and you've covered the tricky diplomacy by Russia reaching out to Ankara, Damascus, and the Syrian Kurds. What are the prospects for Putin pulling this off? Some type of deal uh, that um, sets up some type of uh, accommodation between Turkey and Syria, bringing the Syrian Kurdish parties along too? Well, I think that it's a very, very difficult um, feat to pull off really for a variety of reasons. Obviously, Turkey is very concerned about an influx of further refugees from Syria, particularly as there's growing resentment against these refugees in tandem with the uh, economic meltdown in Turkey, uh, which is quite predictable. Um, therefore, Erdogan is absolutely, you know, hell-bent on preserving the status quo in Idlib uh, so as to prevent any such influx. But then, of course, Russia is pushing very hard and running out of patience, as it were, and is cont continuing to conduct military 
operations, um, often targeting the civilian population in those areas. The big question is, you know, how far is Russia prepared to go if it feels that Turkey is not living up to its commitments, which include finding a way to um, to, to to get the um, Islamists who run Idlib to disarm somehow, uh, which seems like an impossible kind of mission. For Tur certainly Turkey has failed in doing that. And of course, people question whether it's really committed to doing that. People say that Turkey is actually in league with Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, the main uh, <clears throat> jihadi group that, that that's um, controlling that area. And which, in the meantime, is actually eliminating the what people call the more extreme uh, Islamist groups, the Al Qaeda affiliated groups, uh, but and 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 presenting this as a kind of as kind of proof that it's you know more moderate than them and a serious actor that the West should be engaging with. And of course, the Russians don't buy that. They think that. Hayat Tahrir Sham are terrorists, and in fact, they're designated as such by uh, the UN, the United States, and Turkey itself. So, what happens on it in Idlib, of course, is a remains a, a question mark. But Turkey will continue to resist um, Russia's demands that it be handed over to the regime and that Turkey withdraw its support for HDS, but. Then, of course, what's happening in Ukraine, I think, is something that we all need to watch because that has a direct impact on Russian-Turkish relations. Turkey has been selling armed drones to Ukraine that are now being used for the first time in Donbass uh, in eastern Ukraine against Russian-backed separatists. And that has really, for, for the Russians, that's really a red line. And we, we know that uh, Russia has been massing troops along that border and the U.S. has warned of, you know, the possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so we need to watch that because ultimately Turkey plays with Russia in many different theaters and on many different levels. Economically, too, of course, there's a very significant relationship between the two countries. Turkey controls the, uh, the Black Sea, I mean, uh, passage through Black, Black Sea, the Bosphorus Straits. Um, and so, of course, that's vital for Russia and how, how Turkey decides I mean, it's bound by the Montreux Treaty, but we've seen President Erdogan act unilaterally and in sort of disregard international law on quite a few occasions. And the Russians may well wonder, well, if we antagonize this man enough, could he then, you know, in breach of Montreux, allow more American warships into the Black Sea and that sort of thing. So it's a very complex complex situation and uh, very hard to predict. And Brendan, to add to the complexity, do any of the recent Arab initiatives to reach out to Assad, I'm thinking of Assad's call with King Abdullah of Jordan, the visit uh, this month of UAE Foreign Minister Abdullah bin Zayed al Nahyan to Damascus and meeting with Assad, does that outreach have any effect on Erdogan's decision making? regarding whether to uh, bury the hatchet with Assad? It wouldn't surprise me if the UAE were 
seeking to mediate between Assad and Erdogan. Of course, there's very strong personal antagonism that exists between those two men. And I suspect the, you know, the hatred runs much deeper in Assad than uh, in Erdogan, because as Assad sees things, uh, Erdogan wrecked his country. But there, you know, there's been contact between uh, Ali Mamluk, the head of intelligence, Syrian head of intelligence and Turkey's spy chief, um, Hakan Fidan, and we've reported on that. And of course, at the same time, as I said, there's this growing resentment towards um, Syrians inside Turkey, with most Turks saying that all these Syrians, and there are nearly 4 million of them, that they should all go home. Uh, which, of course, it is impossible, but still, that's what they want. The main opposition party has said that it, it definitely wants to normalize relations with the Assad regime. So uh, when you take those factors into account, and at the same time, one knows that Turkey's focus now in Syria, yes, preventing the refugees from coming in, but also preventing the Kurds from making any more political gains, from consolidating their autonomy. One could envisage a scenario where Erdogan or whoever is running Turkey sits down and thinks to themselves, well, uh, perhaps it makes more sense for me to go and make peace with Assad and gang up with him against the Kurds rather than have him make peace with the Kurds uh, mediated with Russia through Russia and have all of them gang up against me. The paranoia of the Kurds really has, I think, influenced Turkish foreign policy uh, disproportionately in my view and continues to do so. So that's not to be ruled out that this shared fear of the Kurds, because let's face it, for Assad too, they pose a threat at some level, may, may drive them to sit down and make some kind of peace, perhaps. It's not to be ruled out. Amber, in my last question, you did a moving article and video report on how camels have also been affected by the civil war and the drought. Tell us about this story and uh, what you saw there in Syria regarding the camel population. Well, first of all, Joe Snell did a great uh, video uh, with the footage I shot. So thanks to Joe Snell. Uh, it was incredibly moving, incredibly sad because this drought is ironically, paradoxically affecting the camels, the camels known to be the most resilient to drought. Um, because there's no vegetation left for them to feed off. That's how, you know, camels survive. They eat the sort of grass plants that, 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 that they find in the desert. And it's now, there's just none, no vegetation. So farm, uh, the camel herders, the Bedouin tribes have to buy um, hay and barley to feed them, but they don't have the money to do that. So the camels are, are starving. And in fact, uh, the tribe I visited uh, told me that 60% of uh, expecting mothers had lost their babies this year from hunger. And in fact, I saw 
a baby camel that was literally dying uh, from hunger. The poor animal was sitting in this manger uh, on its knees and hind legs folded and couldn't get up because it was too weak and it kept moaning. It was just heartbreaking hearing it moan in pain and looking at its owner sort of imploringly. It was just really tragic. Amber, and this has been a treat to again talk with you on our podcast about the region and your just superb reporting from Syria. Thank you for taking the time and for all your contributions to Monitor. Thank you for allowing me to go to those places and do this reporting. We will return after this short break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guests, my podcast co-host, Ambrin Zaman, and to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rockland of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all of our podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, whose guest this month is former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Martin Indyk, talking about Martin's new book, Master of the Game, about Henry Kissinger's Middle East diplomacy. On Israel with Ben Caspin, whose guest this week is international media expert Peter Lerner. And as I mentioned, we'll be back here next week on On the Middle East, where my guest will be Michael Kaufman, Director of Russian Studies at the Center for Naval Analyses. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the region at lmonitor.com.